This is a podcast about Jeopardy. Hello and welcome to Potty Potables. I'm Emily. And I'm Kyle. We competed against each other on Jeopardy. Kyle ended up winning seven games. And we've been chatting about the show ever since. Each week we start with analysis of this week's Jeopardy episodes. Then we move on to a deep dive from a question or category from one of those episodes. And we wrap it up with a quiz. This is our third and final week of recapping the 15 episodes with the 15 Tournament of Champions contestants. And I am so excited about this. We have a guest here with us today. We have Jay Sexton. Hi, Jay. Hello, everybody. How are you? Yeah, doing great. Um, thank you so much for being here with us. And uh, Jay Sexton, if, if you are a, if you are a serious Jeopardy fan, then you should probably already know this without me saying it. Uh, but Jay Sexton has a really special place in Jeopardy history in that he was in. I think we can call it the best game ever played. It was it was the highest combined Coriat score. Uh, ever uh, the game where uh, Emma Betcher ended up winning against James Holtzauer, um, mm-hmm. and and Jay held his own pretty solidly in there too. Yeah, I mean, yeah, I like to say that I, I like to say that I at least contributed. Mm-hmm. Oh, for sure. Yeah. And I mean, your your score at the end of the game is uh, totally respectable, and in most situations would have won. <laughs> mm-hmm. uh. Yep. Yeah. Uh, I will say, when you go to your entire life, you can't wait to make it on Jeopardy. And then they tell you, congratulations, you're up against the most dominant champion ever and someone who wrote her thesis on Jeopardy. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know you're in trouble. <laughs> uh. So, on Monday, which was June 29, um, we had the game from Monday, January 14, 2019. We had Susie Langevin, a social worker from Framingham, Massachusetts. Charlie Jensen, a program director from Los Angeles, California, and Anaki Garcia, an instructional design consultant from Salt Lake City, Utah, whose two-day cash winnings at that point totaled $37,701. And it was really fun to see a couple of our, our former podcast guests on this week. That's right. Uh, so we've, we've had Anaki with us before. Mm-hmm. And our categories in the Jeopardy round were exotic wildlife, Olympians, Connecticut, T-Y very much. Every correct response will start with T and end with Y. Windmills and found in translation. Yep. And uh, as we now know about Anarchy, she's very into languages. So naturally she went to the found in translation category right Mm -hmm. off the bat. Yeah. We did have three triple snuppers in that category, though. Anaki got the $200 uh, Cien Años de Soledad by Gabriel Garcia Marquez, 100 Years of, 100 years of Solitude, but nobody got Jean-Paul Sartre's Lettre et le Néant, that's being in nothingness. Nobody knew Ovid's Ars Amatoria at the $600 level, that's the art of love. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm not even going to attempt the Russian, but Susie correctly identified crime and punishment. In uh, Russian, and then, yeah. Yeah. Uh, and then nobody knew Franz Lehar's operetta Die Lustige Witwe. That's the Merry Widow. This was a this was a pretty close game through much of it. Yeah. Uh, they stayed all pretty close to each other in the Jeopardy round. And then in Double Jeopardy, Anarchy got the lead for a little bit. And then Susie had the lead for, for most of it until Anarchy got the lead again right at the end. Mm-hmm. 
Mm-hmm. Yeah, and this kind of goes back to what I've been saying the last couple of weeks. Like, seeing the champions before we had the knowledge that we were going to be in the tournament and the time to prep for it. Yeah, I mean, obviously we had some big wins and that's what they were showing off, but it was not, for for most of us, I would say, uh, it was not nearly as dominant as it might have felt in retrospect, you know? Mm. One person, perhaps, excluded. From <laughs> <laughs> we get the first Daily Double in the Connecticut category. That is just a weird word to look at. Yeah. It's at the $400 level. It's pick number 12. Charlie found it, and uh, he wagered 1,000 of his 1,600. He was tied for first place with Susie, and Anarchy was right behind at 1,000. Got the clue. As a new student at Yale Med School, you'll have this garment placed on you by a senior faculty member. And he gets that right. He says a, a lab coat, which is correct. It's a $400 clue pretty pretty obvious so down at the thousand dollar level in that category uh we had one of my kids favorite destinations um it was at the maritime aquarium focused on the life of this geographic sound don't toss cafeteria pretzels to the fish that is the long island sound anarchy got it um and the maritime aquarium is about 45 minutes from my house so obviously we are not going during the pandemic but that's that's a big favorite for us Yeah. yeah, so 45 minutes with New York traffic, that's like three quarters of a mile? Because we're up in Westchester, yeah. Um, no, it's, I, I think it's probably, oh gosh, how far, how far is it in mileage? I think, I'm, I think I'm at highway speed most of the way. I would mm. say it's probably, mm. it's probably mm. 30, 30, 35 miles, something like that would be my gotcha. guess. Gotcha. Okay, cool. So, it's a good joke, Kyle. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> sorry, sorry. I didn't that, mean to shoot It's okay. You <laughs> it's fine. <laughs> You don't have to pity me. I'm like too deep in the weeds of like where there is and it's not traffic in New York. <laughs> <laughs> so at the end of the Jeopardy round, Anarchy has moved into the lead at 5,800, but Susie is right behind at 5,400 and Charlie is at 4,600. And they get the double Jeopardy categories, Euro coins, terms of endurement, the story of my life, in the cloud, dressed alike, and they got the memo. I kept hearing Euro coins as unicorns for some reason. (laughs) That would be a very confusing set of clues then if you're expecting unicorns. Yeah, indeed. Daily Double 2 comes up in the Terms of Endurement category at the $800 level. Susie finds it, wagers 2,000 of her 4,600. Anarchy has 8,200 at that point. Charlie has 5,400. And she gets the clue. Intestinal or not, this cardinal virtue comes from Latin for strength. And she correctly responds, what is fortitude? Yep, so that uh, that pops her into the lead, right? Yep. Or it starts to. Wait a second. Let's see. No, it's a couple up of to, couple of clues. Up to, yeah. yeah, up to sixty six hundred. So she's still trailing Anarchy by by sixteen. Yeah, but then she can but she goes then, on yeah. to, to run but the terms she, of yes. endurance category. Yes, indeed. Yeah, so she took the lead and held it uh, right up until the last five clues or so. Yeah. 
Uh, I also had a clue in one of my games where Meghan Markle was the correct response. They really liked Meghan Markle in this season. Hmm. The dressed-alike category $800 clue. Kate Middleton wore blue and green tartan back in 2012. So did she for an official visit to Scotland in 2018. Susie guessed who is Queen Elizabeth. That would be funny. But Anarchy got the rebound with Meghan Markle. Uh, and mine was a, a picture of Meghan Markle. And basically, who's this? So... Mm-hmm. And I, I, when I think of Meghan Markle, I always have to remind myself that it's Markle, not Merkel, because you know the Chancellor of Germany is a very different Angela. woman. Well, yes, <laughs> very, they look very similar. So they <laughs> they are both strong and intelligent, and that is why they look similar. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. <laughs> the third. Uh, Daily Double shows up in the Story of My Life category at the $1,600 level. Uh, It's pick number 14. Anarchy finds this one. Uh, She's at $9,400. Susie is at $12,200 and Charlie's at $5,400. She wagers $3,000, which would put her barely in the lead if she gets it right. The clue is this bandmaster composed the 1928 autobiography Marching Along. And she guessed who is Strauss? Anarchy. But the correct answer is John Philip Sousa. Yeah. Strauss was a composer. I almost feel like she just, the S name kind of just came boarding out before she could think about it. You know, thinking Sousa instead of Strauss. Mm-hmm. Yeah. That, that's the way it felt to me, at least. Yeah, because she did kind of answer somewhat quickly. Uh, mm-hmm. So it, it, it might have been just the first thing that popped into her head and she went with it. But yeah, if there's a question about composer and marching, it's probably going to be Sousa. It's mm-hmm. not the only one. Like, they might they might try to be tricky and throw in Carl King, Fillmore, or someone like that, but usually it's going to be Sousa. She was very dominant after that, though, in the they got the memo and Euro coins categories and was able to make that ground. Yeah, I think that Susie got one clue for the rest of the game and... Charlie got a, Charlie yeah. got a couple. Yeah. All right, so at the end of the Double Jeopardy round, Anarchy has taken the lead. She's at 16,800. Susie is in second with 13,400. Charlie has 9,000. And the final Jeopardy category is familiar phrases. We get the clue, originally a folk term for a chronic rash. This phrase got a new meaning as a title for a 1952 stage comedy and later a movie. And they all got this one. Uh, Charlie has wagered 8,900. I would probably make a smaller wager from that position. I hope that hope that second place is uh, covering an all-in. He, But he correctly responds, what is seven-year itch? Almost doubles his score. Uh, Susie has wagered 13,000. Again, that's, that's, that's an aggressive wager. It sort of depends on what you think everybody else is going to do. But, but she is correct, too, so, so she makes it up to 26,400. But Anarchy has it correct as well with 10,001. That is a cover bet. And so that gives her her third win. Mm-hmm. And man, I mean, looking at these scores and, you know, obviously it's the same for most people. But like third place ends at 17,900. Second place is at 26,400 and you get $1,000 and $2,000. Yeah. Not, not saying I think they should change it, because I, I don't. There's a lot of merit to the argument of, like, it makes people play to win. But 
Mm -hmm. but oof it's a yeah <laughs> a, a, a tough experience yeah that doesn't feel very good yeah i mm -hmm. also people there there's a pretty widespread misconception that second and third place get the dollar value that they finished with <laughs> And so people often ask me what I did with the money. <laughs> well, you know, it covered my flights and my, my hotel, yeah. and, you know, a, a nice dinner out. That was pretty yeah, much it. <laughs> I'm not, I wouldn't turn my nose up at $2,000, but it does not go terribly far. Yeah. Right. And then, and they take taxes out, which is fine. I'm fine with paying yes. my taxes. I like here, roads but, and bridges uh, and schools <laughs> and stuff. Uh, so Tuesday. This was June 30th, but it is the game from Thursday, March 28th, 2019. They'd had the contestants Kenji Shimitsu, a biomedical engineer from Ann Arbor, Michigan. Sarah Von Oyen, a librarian from Troy, Michigan. Two Michiganers. And Stephen Grade, a sports industry consultant from Atlanta, Georgia, who at that time had one-day cash winnings totaling $21,600. So this is Stephen Grade, Game 2, yet another guest on the podcast. Mm -hmm. And we get the Jeopardy round categories, movable feasts, with a question mark, film directors, we would have also accepted, name that novelist, the Western U.S., and put a, quote, ring on it. And uh, anybody who has interacted with Stephen in pretty much any way would know that he would immediately go to the film director's category, which he did, and then he ran it. So with, with an incorrect response from Kenji on the $1,000 clue. So by five clues in, he had 3,000, second place had zero, and third place had negative 1,000. So he was, he, he took, made a good start to this game. He's a major film buff, and his wife worked for Turner Classic Movies, I believe, up until very recently. So film would, would definitely be his wheelhouse. Yeah, definitely. So we find the first Daily Double in the Name That Novelist category at the $1,000 level. It's the 17th pick, and Sarah finds it she wagers 1,000 of her 1,800. Um, so the true value of the clue, Stephen's at 5,400 at that point, Kenji is at 400. And the clue is tonight's lecture, a slideshow about pagan symbolism hidden in the stones of Chartres Cathedral. And she correctly identifies Dan Brown. It turns out actually that if you read one Dan Brown novel, you can then go up to any minister and say, now I'm not a biblical expert, but, and then just monologue for like 15 minutes about like Judas and like who was maybe married to who and like just all kinds of stuff. It just, it just gives you a license to just talk my ear off about just absolutely fabricated nonsense. Well, in that case, uh, I'm not a biblical expert, <laughs> but... <laughs> Did you know? Well, it's evident to me that Dan Brown had a very bad experience in the past. I think particularly with the Catholic Church, yeah. because every mm -hmm. every novel he has, he goes hammer and tongs on him. So I, I don't know what happened, but mm -hmm. I feel sorry for the guy. Yeah, yeah. yeah. No, I agree a hundred percent. And you know, I read the books. They are you know read in an afternoon, easy reads. And mm -hmm. I mean. Take them for what they are, <laughs> like kind of. Uh, we, we call this we call this brain candy. Yeah, ex exactly. Yeah, exactly. Like, 
compelling if you don't spend time thinking about it. So, mm-hmm. yeah, they have very little historical or scriptural merit. Please do not go up to a minister and think, or you know, really anyone, don't go up to anyone and think that you've like read something that taught you about history because you've read a Dan Brown novel. Don't do it. Now, uh-huh. I mean, you say that. <laughs> But I, I know for a fact, because I read it, that Opus Dei is an evil organization who's trying to take over the world. All right. Anyway, at the end of the Jeopardy round, uh, Stephen is in a solid lead with 8,200. Sarah is at 5,200. And Kenji is at 2,800. And we get the double Jeopardy categories, Thing 1 and Thing 2, Celebrity Siblings, Fictional Memoirs, For the Birds... Letter Perfect and Diet Land. Diet Land, I thought was really interesting because I, ex- like, obviously, I expected it to be about diets, like eating diets, diets but it actually, yeah. it, those were good clues. Those were a lot of fun. We get the second daily double in Diet Land. It shows up pretty late. Uh, it's pick number 23. Kenji finds it. It's at the $1,600 level. Uh, he is at 9200 which is tied with Sarah. And uh, they are both trailing Stevens 18,200. So Kenji, uh, he wagers 5,000. Again, this talked about this before. To me, 5,000 is the same as betting it all. Might as well just bet it all. Um, but he wagers 5,000. And uh, he gets the clue. Traveling on foot, this reformer missed the Diet of Augsburg in 1518, but got a horse and wagon and made it to the one in Worms. And he gets it right. That's Martin Luther, which t- to me is a a bit gettable for a $1,600 clue. Yeah, so he adds 5000 And uh, Emily, I think, I think I had a question in my original yes. run about, yes, about the Diet of Worms. Yes. Yeah. You did. Yeah, you, you, you stole that one mm. from me by buzzing mm, yes. faster. Yes, Oops. yes. Yeah, that was in the, it was in one-syllable cities, Yeah, right? something like that. And uh, this was, of course, after we had had lunch together the previous day and, like, talked about, you know, religion and stuff. <laughs> so yeah. I, I knew, like, I think we both knew full well that the other one could get it as, a, as we were reading yeah. it. So. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. Yes, I, uh, I got some flack from my religious history professors. They're like, why didn't you know, know the diet of verbs? <laughs> Don't you know how Jeopardy works? Yes, I yeah. knew it. <laughs> Knowing it is... <laughs> About like fifty percent, maybe less of the actual game, because you got to yeah. get in first. Mm-hmm. Yeah, uh, we get the third daily double in the for the birds category uh, as the twenty seventh pick. Stephen finds this one and wagers four thousand of his twenty one thousand. Uh, Kenji's at fourteen thousand two hundred. Sarah at nine thousand two hundred. And he gets the clue, sailors have long been superstitious about killing this bird, as reflected in a 1798 poem. You can see that he knows it as soon as the clue is revealed. That is an albatross. Rhyme of the Ancient Mariner being the poem in question. Yes. Samuel Taylor Coleridge. Yes. Which is all I know about Samuel Taylor Coleridge. But for Jeopardy, that's probably enough. That's, that's probably enough. It's <laughs> yeah. probably enough. Um, very, very clean game overall. Mm-hmm. Uh, they left one on the board in single Jeopardy. In the whole game, there were two wrong answers. 
And I think, oh gosh, how many triple stumpers? Three, of, three triple stumpers. Three, three triple stumpers. In all this in game. So that's that's a it's a pretty clean game. Nice job to all yeah. three of them. And even so, <laughs> even with like a, a very strong clean game from all three, uh, we go into Final Jeopardy with the scores. Sarah's at ninety two hundred. She had kind of flatlined there at the end. She just couldn't get in. Kenji moved up to seventeen thousand eight hundred, but Stephen was at twenty seven thousand. Oof. Man. Mm-hmm. And we get the final Jeopardy category. Famous phrase origins. And the clue, one theory says a phrase for euphoria comes from plate number nine in an 1896 meteorological atlas of these. Sarah wagered zero, which I think is a smart bet, depending on, on what she's expecting. And she guessed what are the stars... Which, are, which is incorrect. Kenji wagered 92.01 to get a dollar ahead of Steven. And he got it correct with what are clouds. But Steven also had it correct with a cover bet of 86.01. So he moved up to 35,601 and won his second game. On Wednesday, which was in fact, uh, July 1, we had the game from Monday, May 27, 2019. Uh, this was, we had the contestants Scott Swartz, a medical student from Berkeley, California, Monica Foy, a financial planner from San Francisco, California, and James Holtauer, a professional sports gambler from Las Vegas, Nevada, who at that point had won 27 games with cash winnings totaling $2,065,500. $35. As it turned out, this was getting close to the end of his run, although nobody knew it at that point. I guess it's possible. Oh, Jay, you 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 can tell us. Did the the game that you and Emma played against James, was that a a Wednesday taping or was that a Tuesday? That was the first thing Tuesday. Emma and I just uh, we oh, walked in there. Okay. And all we know is, uh, they say, this is James, returning champion. Oh, that's nice. How's he done? Uh, 32 games and $2.5 million. Oh, well, that's good. But that's all we knew, literally. And then, boom, go. So, yeah. Wow. Yeah. Oof. Yeah, it, it occurred to me that I didn't, I didn't know and that conceivably... If you had been, if it had been a Wednesday taping, that like that you could have been somebody, somebody could have carried over. So yeah, so but this would have been at, at backing that out. That would have been a Wednesday taping. Uh, listeners, behind the scenes stuff. Jeopardy tapes five games per tape day, two consecutive tape days, Tuesday and Wednesday, in order to preserve some randomness in contestant selection. A couple of contestants get carried over from Tuesday to Wednesday. I was one such contestant, so I watched the full five games on Tuesday, waiting for my name to get called, and then ended up playing the second game that they taped on the Wednesday taping. People are sometimes surprised that it's not live. Yeah, or, or that it's not, like, taped every, every day. Like, well, well, but Alex says it's this day, and it's like, yeah, because he's been doing this for 35 <laughs> years, and that's how the game goes. Like... <laughs> Like, yeah. he is in part an actor. These are the folks that say that James lost on purpose because he wanted to go home to see his family. Oh, yeah. 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 It, which doesn't make any sense if you actually know anything about how Jeopardy is taped. All right. So we had the Jeopardy round categories. The Secret Life of Bees. The Year's Biggest Hit Song. National Flags of the Americas. 
Verb, adum. Sometimes, and one letter is all you need. And man, I mean, I know they said they were going to pick, like, these, you know, these champions' biggest wins and all that. But I... I don't know. I know there are a lot of a lot of big people, like a lot of a lot of Jeopardy viewers who are huge fans of James and and really enjoyed his play style and like seeing these big spectacular things. But I I personally I couldn't help but just keep looking at Monica and Scott and I don't know just feeling really bad for them because like like we have said so many mm-hmm. times, everybody who gets on the show passes the test, makes it through the audition. Everyone who is there deserves to be there. But but yeah. man, this was just I I mean it was really a one man show. I liked seeing Scott get Quetzel. Quetzel? Quetzel. Quetzel? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Quetzel. And sort of disrupting James's whole uh sweep the bottom row strategy. Yeah. Um yeah. Yeah, that was a good get. I already, like I already knew what episode this was, but still, I saw him get that, and I was like, "Yeah, okay, it's this could be a game." And then I, I reminded myself, like, "Oh wait, this is that record-breaking game, or record-setting game." Mm-hmm. There were a lot of record-breaking games. James answers seventy percent of the ones in the first round. You know, it was just kind of like a served him on a platter almost. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, it, it, obviously, he has you know a, a vast, vast amount of knowledge, but his buzzer speed is just oh it's inhuman yeah it's unbelievable he's he's, he's a stinking android this is insane yeah we get the daily double at uh pick number 12 in the sometimes category it's at the 800 dollars level james found this at this point he was at 8200 to scott's 1000 and monica's zero so of the 11 clues that have been shown he has gotten 10 of them and is at 8,200 already. Uh, he bets it all, as is his characteristic style. And he gets the clue. Though this era was associated with Monroe, the joy began in Madison's administration as the War of 1812 ended. And he gets it right. That's the era of good feelings. Uh, and then he continues on to get the following clue, and the clue after that, and where's pick number 15, and the clue after that. At the first commercial break, the scores are Monica at zero, Scott at 1,000, which are not uncommon scores for the first commercial break. Mm -hmm. James is at 18,600. Yeah. Which normally is a good score for, like, the end of the game. Yeah, after Final Jeopardy. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. It's incredible. And so the rest of the round continues on in much the same fashion. Uh, At the end of the Jeopardy round, Monica has gotten a couple in she's at 600 scott has moved up a little bit he's at 3000 and james is at 21800 and they get the double jeopardy categories my cabinet job 16 letter words poetic geography imperialism actresses and feeling artsy with a c in quotation marks and monica had a couple of good gets in that feeling artsy category um Mm -hmm. Uh, identifying, though her dad said he'd rather see her dead, she moved to Paris in 1866 and later exhibited with the Impressionists. If the female Impressionist, it's probably going to be Mary Cassatt, uh, which also fits with the art C, C in quotation marks, category. 
we have a children's book called You Are My Work of Art, and it's six or seven famous paintings, but then you, they, they give the actual painting and information about the artist and, and a cartoonish drawing of a kid kind of imitating it. And it's all, you know, sappy about how kids are great or whatever. Uh, but this, this, that book is how I remembered Mary Cassatt's name. <laughs> so I was like, oh, that's who that is. I feel like James so so completely steamrolled these other contestants. Don't put this in the podcast. That like the least I can do is be like, oh, they got you know like highlight some of their some of their good gets. Yeah. Um, well. Yeah. And, and for example, I, I think it's when you notice the fact that hey, Monica and Scott got three of the five clues on sixteen letter words. It kept James from getting over half of them right, and that's amazing. That tells you just how much he just he crushed this game. It was amazing. Yeah, they they did get all of the uh, all of the sixteen letter words, which I thought was pretty good. Like, I didn't think they were you know particularly obscure, but those those categories can be tricky, especially since a lot of these words end in some kind of suffix, and if you get the suffix wrong, that can change the number of letters sometimes. So that can throw off. So we get daily double number two in the poetic geography category at the two thousand dollar level. James finds this one as the fourth pick and wagers 11,022. That's somebody's birthday, I think, of his 24,200. Monica's moved up to 2,200. Scott is at 3,000, which I think is where we left him. Harlem, sometimes called A Dream Deferred, is probably the most famous poem by this man. I don't know what makes that a $2,000 clue. Yeah. Keep on second-guessing the writers all the time here. Uh, He correctly responds, who is Langston Hughes? Yeah, I mean, I, I've, yeah, I'm not even, I am, I am self-proclaimed, like, bad at poetry, but if I see Harlem, and I, and I know this poem, like, it's gonna be Langston Hughes, you know? Yeah. So. But you know what you know, and you don't know what you don't know. The key to Jeopardy is knowing what you don't know. That's one of the biggest keys. So. <laughs> That's right. So at least you don't lose yeah. money. <laughs> yeah. That's a good point. Nobody knew Aunt Lydia and nobody knew Janelle Monet. That was, uh, th- those were my gets on triple stumpers, which are always very gratifying from the couch. Yes. The the confirmation bias of, I could have won this episode. I could have beat these people like, <laughs> when you get the triple stumper. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. We get the third Daily Double in the My Cabinet job category. It is also at the $2,000 level. Pick number 14, James finds this one as well. And he wagers straight up 20,000. He is at 41,622, Monica's at 4,600, and Scott is at 3,000. Gets the clue a few names, if one isn't enough. Albert Fall, who very much did, James Watt, and Sally Jewell. And he gets, he gets it correct, that's Secretary of the Interior. Which, man, oof. That seems like a particularly deep pull for me. I, I, I straight up didn't know it, I can tell you that. Yeah. So that's a real good get. Also worth $20,000, so... Oof. Uh, so at the end of the Double Jeopardy round, James is at $72,022. Uh, Monica is at... Si- Go ahead. Sorry, I just... I, like looking at the scores and the notation of lock game under seventy two thousand twenty two, it's like yeah. I was gonna make the same observation, <laughs> right? It's like, I mean, yeah, like that's the same notation for everyone that's a lock game, but like, yeah, we get it. 
Yeah. Uh, Monica's at 6,600. Scott's at 6,200. Those are normally respectable. Like, you know, those are okay scores. Yeah. Those are okay scores. And in the final Jeopardy round, we get the category games. And the clue is, when this game was introduced in 1860, it had squares like intemperance and poverty. And if you hit the suicide square, your game was over. All three of them got this one correct. Uh, Scott wagered everything but a dollar and said, what is life? That's the game. Monica wagered everything but $5. Also responding, what is life? James wagered 58,000. That's a cover bet, I think. Yeah. <laughs> Let me do the math. <laughs> uh, that's a cover bet, I think. Yeah. <laughs> uh, yes. <laughs> you mean like if he got it wrong, he still wouldn't lose? Yeah, yeah. Like if he get yeah, if it's he gets, a safe yeah, bet. Yeah. So that's not exactly what a cover cover bet is, right? But he's like he's it, yeah, he's making the safe bet to not risk his lock. So he'll drop down if he if he were to miss it to fourteen thousand twenty two, staying above Monica's maximum score of thirteen thousand two hundred. <laughs> and he correctly responds, "What is the game of life?" And so neatly written too. One hundred thirty thousand. Yeah. In one game. How many champions have won that over? I mean, like multi-time champions have won that over their entire run. Is what I'd like to know. Oh my, my seven That's games. Yeah, my seven games was 145. So if I had lost in that seventh game, I wouldn't even have matched his score for one day. That's just ridiculous. Yeah. Right. <laughs> yeah. Oh man. But we go from that ridiculousness to to your game. Yeah, like we like we've said before, like possibly the best game ever played. Certainly one of the most impressive, if not the most. This is Thursday's game from July second, but it originally aired on Monday, June third, twenty nineteen. We get the contestants Emma Betcher, a user experience librarian from Chicago, Illinois. Someone named Jay Sexton, a senior research engineer from Atlanta, Georgia, and James Holtzauer. A professional sports gambler from Las Vegas, Nevada, who at that point, his 32 game cash winnings were $2,462,216. And we get the Jeopardy round categories, Picture the Idiom, Literature, Nests, Jukebox Musicals, Nixon Said It, and I Am Not a Cook. I love that joke. (laughs) Nixon, this steak is terrible. I am not a cook. (laughs) Anyway, Jay, tell us about this game. Well, it, uh, as we said earlier, it was an interesting game for us because we walked in there. It was first thing Tuesday morning. You know, I remember we were going through security. Just everybody's greeting themselves and shook <laughs> this guy's hand, said, hey, who are you? Where are you from? I said, I'm James from Las Vegas. And somebody said, he's the returning champion. Well, that's nice. You know, somebody has to be. That's good. Yeah. So we all get back to the green room and, and uh, Maggie and those who are into Jeopardy Maggie was the contestant coordinator, um, legend. She said, James, you want to tell how much money you've won? Or how many games you've won? You said, 32? And how much money have you won? Two and a half million dollars? And I'll be honest with you, I thought that the that Maggie and James had got together to pull a joke on mm-hmm. us greenhorns. Until she said, no, y'all, those are his real numbers. And you start to do the math, mm-hmm. and you're like, that's darn near $80,000 a, a win. Mm-hmm. And at the time, you know, again, we had never seen game one of James. Right. Uh, you know, it hadn't aired. And so we're like, 
you know, if I'm not mistaken, Roger Craig, his record mm-hmm. was 77,000 and he's averaging something like that. Um, and so you automatically know, well, that tells me three things. He's really smart. Well, I'm really smart. I'm on Jeopardy. No problem. He's really good on the buzzer. Well, I, I hope I can be. And he must be betting really big on daily doubles. Mm-hmm. And, and that's literally all we knew. And we get out there, we do our ups, get in the back, and they say, and I'm like, I'd like to get a chance to watch him. All right, first two contestants, Emma Vetcher and Jay Sexton. Oh, great. Here we go. You know, and so we know we're out there and we're off and running. And so, you know, that, that's what we see. Yeah. And then, you know, and then, again, we've never seen him run any kind of board. James, you select first, and he immediately goes to the $2,000 question, uh, which is, you know, the $2,000 literature question. And... All of a sudden, we both knew, you know, Emma and I both knew, well, that's how this game is going to go. We're going bottom up and off, off to the races. So, did they, did they let him have much practice time? I sort of wondered if they changed their rehearsal yeah. strategy when he'd been there for so long. They did just to you know, get him warmed yeah. up. But, you know, he, you, could, you could tell he was joshing around. You know, he, he would ring in and just give a silly answer. Oh. Um, and, and, you know, just, just kind of being, but it was, it was pretty obvious. Yeah. You know, that he was, you know, and I can't remember, you know, it was, uh, you know, what was authored and so-and-so. He'd ring in, Maggie Speed. Oh, okay. So, um, uh, but he, he was just trying to get the, the, the buzzer timing. Uh, again, we didn't realize how good his timing was. I was actually doing okay in the warm-ups, you know, better than average. And it's funny, I remember when Emma was warming up, her first go-round at the warm-up tables, she, I don't remember doing particularly well, not a big deal. But when they rotated her back in the second time, she started getting that timing down. And I remember thinking, man, I kind of hope I don't have to go against her. Mm-hmm. And, and, and then again, game one, it's me, her, and James. And I'm thinking, you got to be kidding me. <laughs> um, and what yeah. impressed me more than anything, and you'll see it through here, is we all know how amazing James is. Mm-hmm. But what amazed me was how good she was that quickly. Yeah. You yeah. know, she was on it from the instant. And I, as you'll see here, I, I struggled on the timing. And I started to get the timing back at the end of each round. But mm-hmm. if you'll, this is an unknown advantage of James's strategy of bottom up. Normally, if you go top down, by the time I would have gotten my, my, my roll going, I'd have been hitting my stride at the, at the high end clues. Mm-hmm. Right. Well, he snatched all those. By the time I got my timing down, all that left were crumbs. Right. Mm-hmm. So, so that's really what amazed me more than anything is Emma never had that problem. So it was pretty incredible. Yeah. You and I both have the uh, distinction of losing to Emma. <laughs> it was. It's not that bad. It's easy to do. So. Oh, no. No, no, no. Don't get me wrong. She's a machine. She's like, yeah, incredible. <laughs> but yes, I know what you mean. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but it was fun, that's for sure. Yeah. It's, it's an unbelievable game. So uh, we hit... Uh, Daily Double number one as the very first pick, which is not what James meant to do, right? Normally, normally they don't put put those Daily Doubles down at the bottom row uh, for the most part. And so part of his whole strategy is to sweep across that bottom row, hopefully pick all of them up, have $6,000 in the bank, and then, and then keep working bottom up so that he hits those Daily Doubles with a huge bankroll that he doubles. Just bad luck of the draw on pick number one. He he calls for calls the first clue and it's the daily double. He's at zero. All he can bet is a thousand, um, and that's a missed opportunity for him. That sort of opens the door. 
Uh, his clue is, the title peak of this Thomas Mann novel is home to a Swiss sanatorium. He knows that is Magic Mountain. Uh, so he picks up a thousand bucks there. And like you said, we didn't know at the time, but foreshadowing that was. Mm-hmm. So. Right. Yeah, because that, yeah, like like we've, like you said, it's a big part of his strategy. And that, I mean, in the game we watched before, Daily Double number one was worth 8200 Mm-hmm. And in this game, Daily Double number one is worth 1000 so. Yeah. But Emma gets right in on pick number two. Mm-hmm. Which is the next, the next one over. So she, she ties it up right there. Yeah. <laughs> exciting game mm-hmm. and then jay's in on on clue number six uh greenhouse gas emission due to human activity leaves behind this and they show like a little like a foot made out of coal um jay's in there with a carbon footprint yahoo which that's it was a it was a cute visual clue and also good to like good to see a couple of people who are able to interrupt james on the buzzer yep yeah it was it, it was i think i was going in a little bit early I think that was my, my, my main problem, but I was glad to finally break that ice because when you look up and it's 2,800, 2,000, and zero, you're thinking, well, good Lord, I'm ever going to get in. And so, mm-hmm. you know, getting that first one was a was a load off. Yeah. Yeah. And especially like, like you know, when you're a challenger and it's your first game and you're on stage and it's just, they, I mean, they give you rehearsal and they do a really good job of kind of putting you at ease and like making it a good time and everything. But then you get on stage and the camera starts rolling and you're like, oh my God goodness this is happening and like alex reads the categories and the champ just picks and you're like okay we're going now yeah getting that first correct response is is huge i Mm -hmm. I remember for me my first ring in uh in my first game was an incorrect response so i started in the red (laughs) i i got to have that feeling of being like cool cool my family's gonna watch this all right (laughs) (laughs) my sister's actually jeopardy alum as well and she said the most entertaining part for her was watching my face which was a little more expressive than I had planned. It's just the frustration continuing to build you, when I couldn't get in. You were very in. bad when other people got in ahead of you on the bus. <laughs> oh, it was, it was like, if, seriously, am I not going to ever get in? You know, is mm-hmm. this, is this happening? So, yeah. I believe that. I believe you 100%. <laughs> Don't blame you at all. Yeah. I don't know if they were trying to be uh, cute, like make a reference to another part of the trivia, trivia world, um, but the $600 clue in nests the creature that provides the marquee ingredient of this Chinese delicacy is endangered. Um, Emma got that one. It is bird's nest soup. That was that was a notorious question on the HQ trivia app a while back, uh, before <laughs> all of its scandals and like before uh, th- th- things have things have gone a little sideways with the HQ trivia app. But there was there was a. Um, a question that knocked out a large percentage of the players where they asked what the main ingredient of bird's nest soup was. And the correct response was bird's nest, but everyone thought it was a trick question and went for noodles mm-hmm. or something like that. Uh, odd, odd, odd connection there. The bird's nest soup HQ game was the very first HQ game I had ever played. <laughs> so I was nice. like, oh, and I got it right. And I was like, oh, I can get this one. And there goes Emma. So eh, whatever. Right. <laughs> yeah. Let me let me also just just say in the I am not a cook category, oh. the very very last pick at the two hundred dollar level. Uh, Jay, my my four year old wants to high five you. Um, Pop tarts are her favorite food, and she <laughs> she shouted it out from the couch. I think it was maybe one of her first Jeopardy like couch shouting out the answer moments, but she was pleased with you for identifying Pop tarts. 
Well, I'm, I'm very gratified to tell her that I'm, I'm glad I made her happy. <laughs> but I was, I was going to make, again, one little nifty behind-the-scenes story on the Nixon set category. If you notice uh, in the categories, anytime the, the quote inside the quotes, the Nixon quote, you know, Alex did his Nixon impersonation. At the mm-hmm. commercial break, he made them go back so he could re-record those and get his Nixon impersonation just right. <laughs> so he's like, I, I wasn't that happy with that one. Hang on. And so he was... You know, he, he would really want to make sure he nailed those Dixon impersonations. Yeah. Oh, that's so funny. Nice <laughs> <laughs> uh. So at the end of the Jeopardy round, we have a game. James is at 9,000. Emma's at 6,400. Jay is at 2,600. And we get the double Jeopardy categories, capital A, and A is in quotation marks, science, political philosophy, somewhat historical TV, Soviets not born in Russia, and playing a 3-4. Each correct response will be two words. The first one will have three letters. The second will have four letters. Jay, you followed, you followed suit and uh, chose a bottom row clue for your first pick. I, again, I was trying to play catch up, and I knew that was only going to happen. And I thought I had the timing at the time. Hey, I'm really getting it back. Clearly not. Sure. But I was like, hey, <laughs> let's go ahead and do this and try to get back into it. And it didn't quite work out for me. I, I went to Capitals. And uh, you know, I was trying to find the Daily Double as well. So like, uh, the thought that was the only way I was going to be able to get in there. And I've been ready from the beginning. I knew if I hit a Daily Double, I don't care if it was my worst category, I was going to have to go all in. Mm-hmm. Um, but sadly, it just didn't happen. So I noticed this in the other game too. First round especially, James tries to clear the bottom of the, of the board. But he does more Daily Double hunting in Double Jeopardy from the start. So instead of... Uh, Instead of going just across the bottom row, he actually went up the capital A category, which allowed Emma to get in on the $1,200 clue. It was in 1664, the English changed its name from Beverwick to this to honor James, Duke of It. Uh, She got in, that's Albany, which allowed her to find the Daily Double just above that, the $800 spot in capital A. And she says, I think I gotta make it a true Daily Double, which yes, you do. Mm-hmm. You That's what she had to do. Do you absolutely did? So yeah, she wagered seventy six hundred. Uh, James was in the lead, like twelve thousand six hundred, and and Jay had not yet gotten in. He was still at twenty six hundred, but we know he'll get some more. She gets the clue. It's home to the annual United States sailboat show, and she knows that that is Annapolis. So that put her up into the lead. Mm-hmm. Like oof, the chills. Jay, I'm very proud of you. Soviets not born in Russia, $2,000 clue. This Ukrainian-born composer created Peter and the Wolf. Now, did you know Prokofiev from Ukrainian-born, from Peter and the Wolf, or were you guessing? Uh, it was Peter and the Wolf. I, you know, like you said, he tried to do some prep work before he got to Jeopardy. I couldn't do as much as I wanted to, but I was like, you know, composers for me was a weak spot. So I did some, uh, some memorization, and that was one, frankly, thankfully, that stuck in my head. Uh, but if you heard, that's why I had that little bit of Prokofiev, because I thought sure. that was right. But it wasn't one that was just uh, instigate for me. But mm-hmm. I was very pleased. I was very pleased to get that one because it's a little, not say out of character, but not one of my strong suits typically. We, we've been kind of jumping around the board, everybody's daily, dump, daily double hunting. But Emma finds it as the 14th pick at the $2,000 level of political philosophy. This time she wagers just. 3,000. Uh, she's at 20,400. James is trailing her by almost 3,000. He's at 17,800. Uh, Jay's at 7,400. 
On book covers from GOP lawmakers Jason Chaffetz and Mike Lee is this phrase for the bureaucracy said to be working against democracy. And she correctly responds, what is the deep state? And uh, extends her lead there, and the Daily Doubles are off the board. So the Daily Doubles are gone, and she got a correct, which moved her farther into the lead. Most of the $1,600 clues are gone at this point. And so like you like you said earlier, Jay, that strategy of like clearing the bottom of the board works really well if you're the one who gets into the lead when those clues are gone. Yes. Yeah, when, when she, uh, for me at least, when she hit that one, you know, I knew it was, a, it was pretty much a nail in my coffin because I knew <laughs> Daily Double was pretty much the only way I was going to have any prayer of getting back into it. Yeah. But you also realize, wow, they're gone now. That's, that's taking time off for him. And we knew, and you'll see at the end, he ultimately answered more questions than we did, but not terribly more so than, she, than her. But, mm-hmm. um, you know, she kept it very close. But when that last Daily Double went off the board, it was like, ooh, you know, this is going to get very interesting. Yeah, Emma maintains her lead for the rest of the game. Going into Final Jeopardy, Jay is at 11,000, which is a very good score going into Final Jeopardy. <laughs> it is. That's a legitimately good score. Like, Don't let anybody tell you. Oh, that is, that I, is I was the, not embarrassed. Let me tell yeah, you. Yeah, no, especially against these players. Like, that is impressive. With no daily doubles, 11,000 is a good score. James is at 23,400, and Emma is at 26,600. They get the category Shakespeare's Time. James later said that when he saw that category, his heart kind of fell because he knew Emma would know it. <laughs> He's like, she's a librarian. She's going to know Shakespeare. And the clue is the line, quote, a great reckoning in a little room in As You Like It is usually taken to refer to this author's premature death. And you all got it correct. Again, very impressive. Jay wagered 6,000. You moved up to 17,000. James wrote, who is Kit Marlowe, and wagered 1,399, which is the correct bet. Amen. Right. It's the right thing to bet. Don't make us get our whiteboards. I'm opening my window and shouting it at my neighborhood. (laughs) I cannot tell you how many times I had to explain that to people. It got old. Yeah. But Emma did get it correct, and she made a cover bet with Who's Marlowe, so she had a very impressive one-day score of 46,801. And then, you know, they didn't show another game of hers, but she went on to be the only quote-unquote giant killer to win multiple games and do so in a very convincing fashion, so. This is the second final Jeopardy from this series of Tournament of Champions contestants reruns that you could conceivably know by just having watched the movie Shakespeare in Love. So, And again, I will never watch it, Emily. (laughs) It's how I I got it right. And Kyle, I don't blame you. So... (laughs) Uh, No, I probably should. I mean, it is a best, best picture winner. But. It probably hasn't aged that well, but I I get a lot of joy out of being like, oh yeah, I learned that from Shakespeare in love. I can't, no wrong way to know a thing. Yeah. You know how much I have learned from playing video games? Like Civilization? Yeah. And mm-hmm. as much as there's a whole bunch of like totally wild and not real things in Assassin's Creed, there is some historically accurate stuff. Yeah. No wrong way to know a thing. Before we leave this game, I do want to, just for the people reading, set one thing straight. As you all know, there is one clue in the entire game that was missed. It was that one triple stumper. 
which was about mm-hmm. the, the paternalistic taxes in Iowa. And I just want people to know the only reason I guessed on that is because we all knew we had a perfect game going. We knew it. We talked about, like James looked at us after, after uh, the, the first round and said, y'all, we, we aced that round. We're like, yeah, we know. Wow. And so we're three clues from the end. And I'm thinking, you know, I'm not going to win. That's for darn sure. I'm thinking, well, at least we can get a perfect game because all we have left are $400 clues. And then that pops up. And I'm like, huh, I don't know the answer to that one. No big deal. I'm waiting for them to get it. And they don't ring in. And I had the conscious thought sitting there on stage going, are we really going to lose our perfect game on a $400 play? <laughs> Is this really happening? And so I had to take it. I just had to take a swing at it. We tried, but that's just that uh, one little thing is going to haunt me forever. I didn't know it, but it was still like, really? That's just, sure. that was just annoying. But uh, yeah. I, it was amazing. I love that. That is, that is really cool. Like kind of noble of you, actually. <laughs> well, neither of them could take the t- could take them from the team. I was like, well, darn it, I can. So right, and that's what easy. that's what I'm saying. Like yeah, you went out there so and cool. took a risk, even though you know you didn't know it for something greater than yourself. That's awesome. <laughs> that's really cool. Yeah, so. agreed. That's that that's the highlight of this show for me. Mm-hmm. That's amazing, Jay. That's right. But but yeah, it was uh, my one thing leaving there is at least again, if I'm going to lose, let me lose memorably. And the highest ever combined core yet, and James going down, yeah, that works. So at least it was memorable. Right. Yeah, man. Yeah. Yeah. Well, Jay, you uh, you are a contestant who could. I mean, you know, you could easily have won. I mean, any of us could easily have won given the right circumstances. But like, wow. Yeah, um, man. Yeah. So. But I, it, you've got a great attitude about having been part of this unbelievable game it was a blast again uh would i trade it for a win of course but would i trade for anything else no no that's you know if you're gonna do it do it right so yeah um, it was was thoroughly absolutely yeah that's awesome so yeah thank thank you jay for joining us it was a it was a real pleasure and like giving us all that that insider knowledge was really great well thank you for having me uh really enjoyed it and uh i look forward to the rest of the podcast Thank you. You have a right. have a good vacation. <laughs> Thank you very much. Bye, y'all. Yeah. Thanks, Jay. Take care. All right. Bye. So on Friday, July third, we had the game from Thursday, May 16, two thousand nineteen. This is Teachers Tournament Final Game One, and our contestants are Sarah Del Delano, a middle school instrumental music teacher from Lynn, Maryland. Francois Barkham, an 11th grade physics teacher from New Paltz, New York. And no, I'm just kidding. <laughs> uh, Connor Quinn, a high school world history teacher from Albany, New York. So two New Yorkers represent. And a music teacher. Yeah. Again. Our, yeah. Our Jeopardy categories are the accessorized teacher, crossword clues L, dancing back to disco, plants and flowers, text and books this game kind of it, it kind of started out slow i feel like not because mm-hmm. not because there were really like any missed responses or anything like that for the most part it just i don't know maybe because i knew like we all knew that francois was gonna win he did not get off to a particularly quick start but he, he picked it up at the end <laughs> yeah yeah, I mean, at the at the end of the at the going into the first commercial break, he is tied with Connor 
for second. Sarah's mm-hmm. in first place. And then he kind of starts to pick up steam, and then Double Jeopardy was... It was his round. It was, it was his round. <laughs> yeah. Uh, he's just like a diagonal line up into the corner on the graph while the other two sort of hang out around where they were. He just he just took off on that on that Double Jeopardy round. Yeah. And you know, I, I mentioned this one that when the actual tournament was airing, but on camera, he is very, he, he's kind of stiff and very mm-hmm. like almost stoic, you know, not, not much energy or emotion coming out of him, but he's like a, he's a really fun guy when we were just yeah. hanging out. He's just like a, he's a really cool guy to, to just mm-hmm. chill with. Yeah. Uh, so Connor started in the accessorized teacher category, which I mean, didn't really have anything to do with teachers it was just things you can wear which is fine it's a jeopardy category mm-hmm. connor did pretty well in there uh he he got himself out to a lead and we get the first daily double at pick number eight connor found it it's in the crossword clues l category mm-hmm. the 800 dollars level he bets it all which is absolutely right especially mm-hmm. that early and alex even makes a comment about it later he gets the clue Fungi and algae combo. Six letters. Now, I, as a <coughs> Eagle Scout, this was an insta-get for me. Gotta keep track of your lichen. Connor did not get it. He had nothing. And so he drops back down to zero. But then Alex says, same thing that we have said many times, doesn't really matter, there's <laughs> there's plenty of game left to go or something like that. Yeah. Which... I can imagine if I bet it all and got it wrong, being told it doesn't really matter would be like, oh yeah? <laughs> <laughs> well, if it doesn't really matter, just give me the money then. Um, yeah. But but yes, it really, like, in terms of the game strategy, you're you're fine. It, it matters. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. I mean, you're okay. It, you've, got, you've got time. You've got time. Of course, you'd like to have the 2400 rather than not, but... Yeah. Yeah. you got time to get back. So at the end of the Jeopardy round... Connor's at 2,200, Sarah's at 2,800, and Francois has jumped out to 7,200. And we get the Double Jeopardy round categories Gritty, European History, New Entertainment with new in quotation marks, People on the Map, Bible Translation, and Add a Vowel. Now, again, how many times are they going to give themselves an opportunity to talk about nothing but the Philadelphia Flyers mascot Gritty and not do it? And then not do it. Why is Gritty not in the Gritty category? I Right? I mean, give this to me. I realize this is a rerun from a long time ago, <laughs> but come on. I mean, it was a rerun from... Like a year ago. Yeah. An eternity ago because <laughs> yes. pandemic time, because we're in the dot on the eye. That's right. But Gritty was a thing at this time. That's right. I think. Oh, right? yeah. He's been around a while. Yeah. He's been in our hearts forever. So. Yeah. We get the second daily double in the people on the map category as the fourth pick. It's at the $1,600 level and Connor finds it. He wagers 2,000 of his 4,200. Francois is at 7,600 at this point. Sarah's at 2,800. And he gets the clue that Karen neighborhood of Nairobi was once the home of this author. Karen's taken on a whole different meaning since this game. Gritty <laughs> endures. Yes. Karen, Karen's new since this game, though. Gritty endures. Um. <laughs> <laughs> uh. 
<laughs> Subtitle of my memoir. <laughs> Connor does not know this one. I actually shouted out one and then shouted out the other and then like worried about which one would be correct. But it turns out I just knew both. This is Isaac Dennison or Karen Blixen. Are they the same uh, person? They are, yes, they are the same person. Her actual name, Isaac Dennison, is her pen name. Oh, and, gotcha. Okay. Yes. Yeah. Yep. So that's a bummer. Like two missed daily doubles for Connor. That's that's hard. Yeah. That's that's a punch in the gut. Yep. Because there's a lot of excitement when you uncover a daily double. You're like, this is my chance, and then you don't know, and you're like, oh no, oh no. Um, yeah. So the third daily double is at pick number fourteen. Swa locates this one. It's in the European history category, at the sixteen hundred dollar level. He is at ten thousand. Uh, Sarah's at 3,600 and Connor's at 3,400, and he wagers a modest 2,000. The clue is, this extreme right-wing ideology, big in the 1930s and 40s Europe, gets its name from a Roman bundle of wooden rods. And Francois gets it right, that is fascism. I liked the Bible translation category. Oh, yeah. Of course you did. We're not going to go through all of them, but I liked seeing Robert Alter's work get a shout out at the $1,600 level. Uh, Many translations use this four-letter word, as in seek God with all thy heart and all thy this. Robert Alter uses being. Um, The correct answer there is soul. Robert Alter is a contemporary translator who's doing these very heavily annotated new translations that are like more visceral sort of in their in a lot of their word choices translations from hebrew of old testament books yeah. um, i like his stuff i i um, should have known you were a robert alter fangirl <laughs> yeah so at the end of the double jeopardy round uh francois is at eighteen thousand eight hundred. this is a two-day total point affair if it were just a game it would be a locked game but in this case, you know, their their total will be added to the next day's total. Uh, Sarah's at 6,800. Connor's at 4,600. They get the final Jeopardy category, 20th century best-selling authors. And the clue is, he once said, in all of us, there is a hunger, marrow deep, to know our heritage, who we are, and where we have come from. Connor has wagered 1,000 and correctly responds, who is Haley? Alex Haley, the author of Roots. Sarah has wagered 2,000, didn't come up with anyone who has question mark. Francois has wagered 1,600. I'm not sure where he came up with that figure, but, but sure. And correctly responds, who is Alex Haley? Hmm. So he uh, he takes the, the win in this game and uh, ultimately in the tournament as well. And that's what got him to the TOC. Yep. That's right. So, oof, man, we're at the end of this, this recap. Yeah. It was a lot of fun. Yeah, it was fun to see them all play again, and um, sort of stretched the feeling of having new Jeopardy. I'm going to feel like we're really in reruns when we go to the tournament. Yeah, I agree. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But that's okay. You know what? I mean, getting new Jeopardy episodes does not even begin to balance the scales with, you know, like saving lives and such. Right. So. Of course. Yes. And I guess speaking of saving lives, there is a way that you can help save some lives of people who are facing injustice in our society. As if you've been listening 
for the past, I don't know, month or so, we have been directing you to turn your funds not toward our Patreon, but toward some worthy causes in our in our country or in your community. We've been highlighting communityjusticeexchange.org and blacklivesmatter.com. They are organizations with lots of resources, both at the national level and the local level, who would be able to guide you and inform you much better than I think, than I know I could, and, and I imagine mm-hmm. better than, than yeah. either of us could, yeah. about what they're standing for, the realities that many people are facing, and how you can help. So we encourage you to check those out. Absolutely. Thank you. All right, so uh, do you have deep dive guesses? Well, first I gotta I gotta get a little bit of little bit of of, uh, of focus. Is it a triple? Is it a missed question, like a triple stumper or a missed daily double? It it is it is a missed question. Okay, sure. which usually it is. that's that's typically what we go mm-hmm. for. Okay, I assume you're not going to be talking about John Philip Sousa. <laughs> I'm not talking about John. Yeah, Philip Sousa. I, yeah, that would be a fun one to discuss. I have. Yeah, I I, I don't feel like I can teach you anything about John <laughs> Philip Sousa. <laughs> I have three guesses. Oh, okay. Um, okay. I guess I guess I used John Philip Sousa, so uh, I'll say I have two more guesses. Are you talking about? Oh, it's tough to go between. I mean, you ju- you just talked about Harriet Beecher Stowe and Uncle Tom's Cabin, but are you talking about the autobiography of Miss Jane Pittman? I am not. Okay. Uh, and so my last guess is then: Are you talking about Isaac Dennison? I am not talking about Isaac Dennison. Okay. All right. I tried. I tried to get a little wacky with this one. Um, Are you talking about Lichen? I'm not talking okay, about okay, Lichen. Okay. Okay. <laughs> although, although I'm not sure that's less wacky than. That, uh, so I didn't have that many missed questions to choose from. That's true. They because yeah yeah because these were these were great games. Hmm. So there were there were like six missed questions on Monday. There were three-ish on Tuesday. There were a couple on Wednesday. There was one on Thursday, and then I didn't count them on Friday. But but yeah, just there weren't there weren't that many to choose from. But I thought it had been a while since we did something sciency. You did your SI units a while back, and so uh, on Tuesday's game. In the double jeopardy round, we had the for the birds category, and we had a triple stumper at the four hundred dollar level. Birds are unique in having these, the obvious characteristic that distinguished them from all other modern animals. Stephen rang in, and just a little too quickly said, "What are wings? Birds do have wings. They do many insects and bats. The correct answer here is feathers. Birds are unique in having feathers, and so I thought." Yeah, like we've done we've done some weird ones. Uh, this is a weird one. It's also it's narrowly focused so that we can be a little short. I thought I would take a moment and research feathers and tell you what I found out. Okay. All right. Uh, Sounds good. I've been trying to come up with feather puns for the podcast title, but I haven't thought of anything yet. If you do, um, please let me know. <laughs> I will. All right. So feathers are an integumentary appendage. Uh, that's integumentary. Integumentary appendages include things like nails, hair, feathers, scales, hooves, 
those kinds of things. Um, and feathers are the most complicated of the integumentary appendages. They are composed of beta-keratin proteins. There's a bunch of structures that are that are made of beta-keratin proteins. In mammals, are our hair and or like mammalian hair, horns, and hooves are uh, alpha-keratins. But beta-keratin proteins come up in birds and reptiles, feathers, claws, beaks, those kind of uh, shells, those kinds of things. And the study of feathers is called plumology. Um, hmm. The structure of a feather. Uh, there's a, there's a few different types, but I'm gonna I'm gonna walk you through. Think about like a like a standard feather, although that's a little complicated. We'll get into that in a minute. But think about like if you find like a feather on the ground. You're picturing your feather. Yes. Okay. All right. At the at the end of your feather, where it attaches to the bird, that part there's a hollow shaft called the calamus. And as that shaft extends into the feather, that part is called the rachis. The two sides of the feather are the veins. The feather has two veins, the, you know, one on one side of the rachis and one on the other. And each vein is made up of barb. So a barb is like one strand of feather stuff. Each barb is covered in two rows of barbules. And then the Barbules um, actually have like little microscopic hooks on them often, uh, hooklets. All right, if it's, a, if it's a standard feather, you've got a standard feather, meaning like sort of, you know, the, the feather that you picture when I say feather, right? Yeah, uh, a peacock feather. I got it. Yeah. <laughs> a penguin feather, yeah. So you've got, you've got like your two veins on the two sides of the, of the rachis. And then if there's any like fluffy stuff, like closer to where the body of the bird would be, that, that is called the after feather. But getting into the weeds a little bit more, you can broadly categorize feathers into two kinds. Veined feathers, the ones that have those two veins in the, in the, uh, on the two sides of the central rachis, and then downy feathers. And you call that the structure of a downy feather is plumulaceous. Let's try that again. <laughs> <laughs> they have a loosely arranged plumulaceous microstructure. They do have most of those same parts, but they have flexible barbs with relatively long barbules that do not have those hooklets. The veined feathers with the with the two veins on the two sides of the rachis, those are called penaceous. They are stiff and mostly flat. The microscopic hooks on the barbules interlock to form to form kind of a barrier that allows the bird to fly or to stay, to stay dry. And and as I mentioned, many feathers have like a like a penaceous region and then closer to the body of the bird a plumulaceous region. Gotta remember that one. Plumulaceous. Plumulaceous. So seven major types of feathers. So wing feathers, um, also called remiges, are optimized for flight. They're generally slightly asymmetric. One side is narrower and less flexible. The other side is a little more flexible and the wing feathers are anchored to the bone with ligaments under, unlike most of the other feathers, which I think just sort of grow like from the epidermis. Uh, the tail feathers also called the retrices are optimized for steering. They are, there are typically six pairs in most species of birds. The central pair does attach to the bone, um, the others don't. And the, the wing and tail feathers are the main ones for flight. 
Contour feathers are what you call the feathers that cover the rest of the bird's body. Contour feathers streamline its shape. They're generally arranged in like kind of a shingle-like pattern. So the, the, the outer edges are more pinaceous, more waterproof. The base tends to be more downy uh, for thermoregulation. A semi-plume feather has a developed central rachis, but no, um, no hooks on the barbules, so it's like a fluffy feather. Down feathers have little or no rachis. Yeah, so it's just uh, kind, of a, kind of a little fluff ball there. Oh. There are also two other kind of weird kinds of feathers. Um, phyloplumes are short, uh, simple feathers with few barbs. Um, they seem to function like mammal whiskers and uh, are often like paired with contour feathers to help sense their position. And then bristles are the simplest feathers, a stiff rachis that usually lack barb branches. And they're most commonly found on the head of the bird, um, kind of looking kind of whiskery or eyelashy. They may protect the bird's eyes and face. Scientists aren't really sure what they're for. It's hard to tell whether whether the birds like are using them like to sense or yeah. Anyway, something I learned is that the plumage of a bird typically weighs two to three times as much as its skeleton. Some birds have a type of feather called powder down feathers. These feathers grow continuously um, with small particles breaking off from the barbules. And those particles form a powder which waterproofs, helps to waterproof and condition the bird's feathers. Evolutionarily speaking for a moment, we now know that many dinosaurs were feathered. That was not a thing we knew when I was a kid. I'm kind of freaked out Right? It. It's weird. It's weird. A lot of dinosaurs had feathers, which seems to support that the first feathers were not for flight. The first fe- feathers were probably had the had like a thermoregulatory function. Hmm. Eventually flight evolved. Uh, there was an experiment where scientists were able to get feather-like structures to grow by altering alligator embryo genes, um, which suggests to them that um, feathers, scales, and also pterosaurs' pycnofibers are homologous, which is to say that those three structures, feathers on birds, scales on reptiles, and the pycnofibers of the pterosaur, which were like pterosaur bristles, are similar structures that share ancestry at some point. Hmm. So dinosaurs evolve to have feathers at some point, some of them. It's hard to know for sure when that was um, because they're not especially well preserved. The earliest believed evidence of feathered dinosaurs is early Jurassic period. But this is for for obvious reasons, I think a little tricky to a little tricky to pin down because the fossil record and feathers are it's, it's complicated. Yeah. So how did flight emerge? Again, we don't know. Uh, there are three proposed models. Two of them come from like 140 years ago. One is newer. The three models, three hypotheses are the cursorial model, the arboreal model, and the pouncing proavis model. So uh, in quick layman's terms, cursorial uh, was proposed in 1879. The idea was a feathered dinosaur or, or like some something along the sort of dinosaur to bird pathway. Yeah, the classic dinosaur to bird pathway. I know. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. yeah that's, you can tell I'm a very, very much a scientist here. It has uh, wings that help its run turn into more of a kind of leaping, gliding thing and that flight develops from, from there. The arboreal model, which was proposed in 1880, imagined 
some kind of like a dinosaur bird thing sort of leaping from tree to tree and kind of developing a glide in that way um, that develops into flight and then the pouncing proavis model is the newer one um, proposed in 1999 they proposed that birds evolved from predators that specialized in ambush from elevated sites using their raptorial hind limbs in a leaping attack and that being able to use their their feathers and and wings to control body position and locomotion during the aerial part of the attack would have been like an advantage that would have carried through. So feathers have a few functions. Flight, obviously flight's flight's the clear one. Thermoregulation is another major one and and likely um, likely kind of their first function. Weatherproofing, water birds in 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 particular, but like that's that's another major function. Um, and then and then display, and there are some very cool things to do with the display aspects of feathers. Birds of paradise, the birds, not the flowers, grow iridescent spiral tail feathers, which are it's the rachis of the feather, but it's bare, and then it ends in a tight spiral of barbs and barbules, so that it looks like an iridescent medallion. So there are all kinds of like interestingly structured feathers that have evolved for the purpose of display. Neat things with color. Some feather color is achieved via pigmentation. Um, Melanin for like browns and grays and blacks. Carotenoids give red and yellow and orange feathers their color often. Um, There are a couple of other compounds that come up in feather pigmentation, although those two families are the big ones. Um, But then some feathers have what's called structural coloration which is to say it's not a pigment that's in the feather. It is something about the structure of the surface of the feather itself. So peacock feathers actually have brown pigment and the iridescent like blue and green and purple. You're seeing that because of like microscopically structured surfaces of the feather that make the light reflect off them in those colors. Wow. Yeah, it's pretty neat. Human uses of feathers. Obviously, we use feathers for heat and comfort, so we've, we have adopted their thermoregulatory powers and, and we use them for, for like our mattresses and our comforters and our sleeping bags and our coats, mm-hmm. pillows. We have co-opted their flight powers for arrows. The fletches on the backs of arrows are traditionally made using feathers, although now I think they use synthetic materials more often. Quill pens were a really important use of feathers for a long time. And in fact, the word pen is etymologically related to the Latin for feather, which is penna. Eagle feathers are super significant in Native American spirituality. Um, And in fact, the Eagle Feather Law permits members of federally recognized Native American tribes to possess eagle feathers, which is ordinarily illegal if you're not a member of such a tribe um, because of federal wildlife laws. And in the 18th to early 20th centuries, feathers were very widely used in women's hats, and that was a major contributor to endangered and extinct species. There was a campaign against the use of feathers of like rare birds in, in uh, as like millinery in 1900. The Lacey Act passed, which prohibited trade in wildlife parts that had been illegally taken, possessed, transported, or sold. Mm. So that's not the longest deep dive we've ever done. No, um, but that but is interesting. Go. Yeah, way more than I knew about birds. 
now you, yep, this is, this is just the feather part of the bird. <laughs> um, someday, maybe someday we'll, we'll get more into, I don't know, other stuff about birds or maybe not. Yeah. I was like feathers. Let's do it. Yeah. Like, no, you're right. Yeah. That is changing it up. Like, cause yeah, we typically <laughs> kind of go on a historical bent, whether that's looking at the literature or like military history, yeah. but yeah, no, that's good. It's real good. Yeah. All right. Are you ready for a feather themed oh. quiz? I am ready. All right, here we go. Question one. We're starting with poetry, but it's the only poetry question. A poem by a certain Amherst poet begins, Hope is the thing with feathers that perches in the soul and sings the tune without the words and never stops at all. Who is this famous recluse? Yeah, so Amherst, the only one I think of is Emily Dickinson. So I'm gonna say Emily Dickinson. Emily Dickinson is correct. Yay! Yay! Hooray! All right. Uh, So you're at 10 points. Question two. In this 2010 Darren Aronofsky film, the protagonist pursues artistic perfection while descending into madness. In one jarring scene, she claws at a rash on her back, eventually extracting small black pin feathers. What is that? Oh, black swan. Yes. Yeah, it's good. That's a good movie. That is a good movie. You you started that out, and I was like, I I have no idea, but then I did know, because yeah, yeah, really good movie. It is. It's a great movie. All right, you're at twenty points. Question three: The first documented instance of this practice is in an eleven eighty nine proclamation from King Richard the Lionheart, declaring it a punishment for thievery at sea. Later, it was used against Joseph Smith, and later still, against civil rights activists. It might sound like a silly, cartoonish kind of punishment, but it was not only humiliating, but also painful and even dangerous. What is this cruel and unusual practice? I have two thoughts. One is tar and feathering. Tarring and feathering. The other is being tickled by feathers. Now I'm I'm going to go with the one that I I feel is more correct but less funny and go with tarring and feathering. You're correct. Okay. <laughs> You're sure it's not um. tickled, savagely tickled by feathers. <laughs> by order of King Richard the Lionheart, you are going to be tickled by feathers. Tickled until death. Um, yes. Yeah, tarring and feathering is correct. And the tar in this case, I found out, um, would typically have been like like pine pitch or resin. People often imagine it being like like tar, like like melted petroleum tar. To melt petroleum tar like that, that that would be like not survivable, survivable probably. So uh, so in ge- generally, it was like pine pitch or resin. Still not great, but people did typically survive it. All right, so you're at 30 points, nice job. Question four. Quills have had many uses over the years, uh, but one that you might be especially interested in is musical. Quill was the most common material for the plectra, which were built into what instruments? Plectra that were built into what instruments? Mm-hmm. Well, built into. I hope that that phrasing is right. I we mean, can talk about it the, if I mess the question. The up. only instrument that I can think of with a plectrum built into it would be a harpsichord. Man, 
This is probably going to be like an O-duh, but yeah, Harpsichord is the only thing I can think, so I'm going to go with Harpsichord. Harpsichord's Oh, okay, okay, good. Ooh, yes. ooh, okay. All right. Oh, my goodness. You, you're, 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 heading, you're heading in the direction of, uh, of tying up my, my uh, record settings work from last week, but we'll see. Oh, you had to name it. <laughs> I, I had to jinx you, sorry. All right, question five. Eiderdown is prized for this trait... Its ability to expand after compression and trap insulating air. What is that four-letter trait? Four letters. Expand. Eiderdown's ability to expand after trap insulating air. I'm sure I know this. Um, uh, four-letter trait. It's not fluff. It's not plush. It's not bounce. Four-letter trait, ability to expand after compression. Oh my gosh. I, I'm drawing a blank. I don't know. I'm, I don't think I'm going to come up with it. All right. So the answer here is loft. Loft. I would not have come up with that. Yes. Eider down is prized for its loft. And then loft you measure in fill power, uh, <laughs> which, <laughs> which is how many cubic inches an ounce of down takes up yeah so fill power ranges from 300 cubic inches to the ounce to around 900 cubic inches to the ounce the higher the the loft the the more insulating it is interesting all right so you are at 40 points and uh we're gonna call call this um avian anatomy okay I am going to go with 21 points. All right. For 61, if you are correct. These feather features are typically for display purposes. They may be raised when fighting or to make the, the bird appear larger, and they may help attract a mate, although they have nothing to do with shiny teeth. What do you call these features that appear on species including cockatoos, cockatiels, cardinals, and blue jays? Shiny teeth. Um, I don't know. My guess is a grill. <laughs> uh, that is, that's not a bad guess. I can see where you are coming from with that. Uh, the correct answer here is a crest. A crest. Oh, uh, yeah. <laughs> Sorry, sorry for my teeth joke. That, it's all um, right. It was a good one. <laughs> uh, right. So you are finishing with nineteen points, and maybe our maybe our listeners got my, got my crest joke. <laughs> um, <laughs> did did as well on some of these. Nice job, especially on harpsichord and on black swan. Those were not easy. I think. I don't know. I guess it depends. You know what you know. Depends on what you know. But thanks, listeners, for spending your time with us. Make sure to subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Uh, It would be great if you could leave us a review or a rating also. Our Patreon, if you want to take a look at it, is is Potent Potables. As we said before, there are more important places to put your money these days. So no pressure. Mm -hmm. But you can always tell your friends. Tell them to check it out. Share the podcast with them. They can find us on Facebook at Potent Potables, on Twitter at Potent Potables 1. Our email address is potentpotablescast at gmail.com, and our website is potentpod.com. That's right. Uh, we will be... Oh, gosh. 
We don't know what we're going to do next week. We're going to record something next week. We'll figure it out. So stay tuned. Uh, maybe we'll put something up in the on our Twitter feed or something uh, to mm-hmm. let you know. We've yeah. talked about stuff. We don't have a plan yet. But we will have something for you next week. <laughs> and until next time, may your minds be quick and your buzzers be quicker. Bye.